Good morning, friends. Wonderful to be with you this morning. I want to invite you, if you will, to um, open your Bibles with me this morning uh, to Psalm 40. Um, if you are looking for a Bible and didn't bring one with you, or you don't have a Bible that you can read at home, there should be a uh, black hardback Bible under one of the chairs near you. Uh, we would love for you to take that home with you uh, if you don't have a Bible that you can read at home. Uh, but feel free to pick that up and follow along with us. I encourage you to open up to Psalm 40 and to leave your Bible open as we look at it together. You can find that in that black Bible on page 468. All right, page 468, Psalm 40. And there, as you look with me, um, you'll find a psalm written by King David. And uh, the title tells us is, To the Choir Master. And it's important to know that uh, that little piece of information is not a throwaway, uh, but it actually gives us a clue um, as to what we should expect as we look at this psalm. The psalms were, and in one sense still are, the church's songbook. And so King David has written this psalm and has given it to the choir master to be brought before God's people as they gather to worship God. And so we know that what's contained in this psalm and in all of the psalms are meant to be formative for the people of God. In other words, these words were meant to be put into the mouths of God's people and proclaimed or sung in the worship gathering. So no doubt coupled with that that poetic meter and the musical arrangement, these words would become a part of the everyday lives and thoughts of God's people as they were sung. So many, um, if not all in some ways, are meant to show God's people what it looks like to live and walk faithfully through the various seasons of life. And in that sense, they are formative. They literally serve to form and shape the thoughts and hearts of God's people. And now friends, I would be remiss if I didn't stop to, to take a moment to just praise and thanks, thank God uh, for our church family and for our church music. Um, you can open up this little bulletin that you get each Sunday and look at the words of the Psalms that our pastors have lovingly picked out for us to sing. And you can find there the story of the gospel. And you can find there what it looks like to live faithfully and walk with the Lord in the various seasons of life. And today was no different, friends. You found there the gospel of Jesus. You found the season that we celebrate. And so even today, as we look to the songs of the church, we see that they are formative. And so we choose them wisely. They're meant to be instructive. And so David's words to us this morning are meant to instruct and encourage and exhort and call us to faithful living. And so as we consider Psalm 40 together, um, we are meant to be shaped and formed by it. We're meant to take it in, be instructed, be encouraged, exhorted. And we're meant to, to believe and do and feel certain things about and for God. And so specifically as we look at Psalm 40, I believe it aims to instruct our praises and our prayers to God. David's gonna show us what it looks like to praise God after a season of great lament and longing to see God work. 
and he'll show us what it looks like to faithfully call upon the Lord in the midst of trials and to patiently wait for his deliverance. So if you're taking notes, here are our two points this morning. The first one is, Christians should praise and thank God for his deliverance in Christ. Christians should praise and thank God for his deliverance in Christ. And we see that in verses 1 through 10. And our second and our last point this morning is Christians should pray with a confident hope for future deliverance. Christians should pray with a confident hope for future deliverance. And we see that in verses 11 through 17. And so friends, look with me now as I read Psalm 40, and let's be instructed and encouraged and exhorted by the word of the Lord this morning. Psalm 40, verse one. David writes, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you had given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O oh Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O oh Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. So again, friends, we begin in the first half of this psalm. Christians should praise and thank God for his deliverance in Christ. Friends, waiting is difficult for us, is it not? Um, but it's especially difficult when we're waiting for help. Um, and a trip to your local emergency room, right, 
makes this abundantly clear, doesn't it? Ironically, you rarely ever see patient patients in the emergency room. And understandably, when we find ourselves in times of suffering or despair or a pattern of sin or having been sinned against, and we're waiting for some kind of help and relief, it's really difficult to be patient. And this is where David finds himself in the time before Psalm 40 begins. But notice in verse 1 that David waits patiently for the Lord. We're meant to see a diligent expectation in his waiting. He's called upon the Lord for help and he expects him to come to his aid. He's not exactly sure how or when. And it seems to us like it's been some amount of time. But David diligently expects the Lord to show up. And friends, he does. The image in verse 1 is that God actually leans down toward David and listens to his plea for help. Friends, isn't God good in that way? Not only does God show up and listen, but he acts. Look at how God helps David in verse 2. There's some beautiful poetic contrast here. David is down in the pit and stuck in that miry bog, but God pulls him up and out of the pit and sets his feet on solid ground. Where there was once seemingly no hope for the future for David, now God makes his steps secure. There's a way forward. And it's important that we see too here, friends, that it's the Lord who is doing all of these things. It's not David. And so he even continues in this in verse 3 saying that God has given him a new song of praise to sing. Isn't it sweet to remember and to know that even when we can do nothing to help ourselves and all hope may seem utterly lost, that when God shows up, he is able to intervene and to help. Amen? His help isn't dependent on our ability to do for ourselves. Isn't God good? And as a result of all of these works that God's done for David, David's convinced that many others will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And how could they not? Look at how David describes the state of the person who makes the Lord their trust in verse 4. He says they're blessed. They're happy, they're content, fulfilled. They're not burdened by looking for their own way in life. They're not misguided by those who attempt to assure them that they have life all figured out. They're able to turn their back on those who are telling lies. Friends, do you see the extravagant peace that exists for the one who trusts in the Lord? It reminds me of Isaiah 26 where the prophet writes, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. Isn't God good to give his people such peace? Amen? It seems in some sense that, that God's work in David's life personally it, it then causes his eyes to have to been open and to see God's work more clearly all around him. In verse 5, he begins to notice a multitude of God's glorious works among his people. He sees God's plan coming to fruition, and he's literally awestruck at that realization. 
He's confronted with the goodness of God and he rightly acknowledges that there is truly no one like you, God. He can't even begin to find the words to describe the amount or the greatness of God's works and his plans. David kind of reminds me here of a little child, right, that's excited about an event. I remember uh, my oldest niece, Chloe, when she was really little, we took her to the circus for the first time. And I have a great photo of her in a big clown hat with a, a stuffed elephant under one arm and cotton candy under the other. And I can remember her just saying, and then, and then, and then they did this, and then, and then they did this. And it was as if there was just not enough words to contain the excitement and the joy of all of the things that she was seeing and all of these things that were good. And David seems to have that same kind of disposition here where he just can't find enough. Isn't God good to open our eyes to see his glorious works all around us? Verse six then, at first reading, could be a bit confusing for those with some understanding of the Old Testament. You might say, how could David say that God doesn't delight or require sacrifices and offerings from his people? There are whole sections, friends, of the Old Testament that are devoted to writings about these sacrifices and offerings. They cover in depth the who, what, when, where, how of these sacrifices and offerings. So, so what's David talking about here? What's he getting at? Well, David is actually affirming here in a poetic way what the Old Testament already makes clear in other places. Listen, if you will, to one commentator what they have to say about this. They write, God's chosen people knew the proper response to the love which God had shown through his covenants. And that proper response was obedience. They believed that God had given them sacrifices as a means to maintain their relationship with him. But sacrifice alone could never be a substitute for obedience. And I encourage you to look at 1 Samuel Chapter 15, verse 22, for an example of that. 1 Samuel 15, 22. He goes on, several of the prophets spoke fiercely against the Israelites for supposing that God would be pleased with them because of the many sacrifices they made. The prophets made sure that the Israelites understood that sacrifices were an inadequate response to God's love. And I, I encourage you to check out Isaiah chapter 1 to have an example of that as well. Isaiah chapter one. Sacrifices should be an outward sign of the inward and personal response to God, which only fully showed itself in obedience to God's will and purposes. So friends, in short, perhaps to say, checking all the religious boxes and doing the deeds of religion doesn't delight God. God delights in his people joyfully obeying his will. We might think of, of the husband who, who comes home on his anniversary and brings flowers to his wife. And his wife says, oh, I'm so thankful that you brought me flowers for our anniversary. I love you so much. And he says, well, you know, that's kind of what we're supposed to do. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know. Hallmark seemed to make me think that I should pick something up for you, you know, so. 
In other words, friends, like anybody walking in on that goes, awkward, right? Everybody understands that there's no heart in that. There is no genuine love. There's no seeking to do the best for the other. There is, there, there's nothing in that. It's empty deeds, right? So with that truth in mind, now look with me at verses 7 and 8. Now David, he sees that clearly. He sees that, that God delights in obedience. So what does he do? He comes readily and promptly to obey all the scroll of the book, he says. He's talking about God's laws here. And specifically, all of the laws, he says, that are written of me. And David's referring to the laws that apply to his kingship as the king of Israel and how he should lead God's people. So it's his delight, he says, to obey God because his laws have penetrated deep into the depths of his soul. These are not empty deeds. This is David loving God, seeking to obey him out of an outpouring of his love for his God. So David clearly sees part of his obedience to God's law as proclaiming God's goodness to God's people when they gather. So look at how willingly, openly, boldly he tells of God's steadfast love and faithfulness toward him. In verses 9 and 10, God's deliverance of David was definitely personal, but in no way was it ever intended to be private. God's people have always been instructed to proclaim, to his, proclaim his works to the coming generations. You, you might remember from Deuteronomy 6, where that's described, or even in Psalm 78, where tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord. God also intended for his mighty acts to be a testimony to the watching world that there is a God in Israel. Remember most famously when David stands before Goliath and he says, today, man, I'm going to cut your head off so that everybody will know that there is a God in Israel. Whew. It just got serious. <laughs> so friends, isn't God good to not only deliver us but to actually cause us to desire new things, like to obey him and to proclaim his goodness to others. Isn't he good? And friends, I want to encourage us now to, to look even a bit further than God's deliverance of David if we're going to grasp fully the extravagant riches of God's grace for us in this text. Because you see, there are at least 15 psalms that are quoted in the New Testament that refer to the Messiah, Jesus. And here in Psalm 40, we have one of those accounts. Verses 6 through 8 here in Psalm 40 are referenced in the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to invite you, if you would, to flip there in your Bible, keep your finger at Psalm 40... And find Hebrews chapter 10. If you're using the Bible in the chair, it's on page 1006, 1006. But I'd love for us to look at this, actually put our eyes on it together. For one of these occurrences where the Psalms are quoted um, in the New Testament. All right? <clears throat> so Hebrews chapter 10. And in verse 5 of chapter 10, the author writes this. He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and this is, this is from Psalm 40, verses six through eight. Christ said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, 
but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8, when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What the author of Hebrews is getting at here, friends, is that when Christ came into the world, he took upon himself the task of fulfilling the plan of God that was described in Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. In the body that was prepared for him, as Hebrews says, the Son of God lived a perfect obedience to the Father, even to the point of his death on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He came to set aside the ancient sacrificial system that we just discussed previously by being the perfect expression of the obedience, which was always the intention behind those sacrificial rituals. So that the author of Hebrews can clearly proclaim in verse 10 that by the will of the Father, revealed in Scripture and carried out by the Son, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. No more sacrifices or rituals are required to keep people in that sanctified condition. So friends, look back with me one one more time at Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verse one though this time, Hebrews 10, one. The author writes, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So friends, when the author of Hebrews says in verse 1 that the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, he's saying that Jesus has done what the law of Moses could not do. Jesus' sacrifice is able, listen to this friends, Jesus' sacrifice is able to fully cleanse to fully cleanse and purify the believer from the defilement of their sin. Amen? Able to fully cleanse the believer from the defilement of their sin. Through faith in Christ then, the believer is now set apart and bound to Christ. They're united with him in the fullest sense of the word so that when God looks upon the Christian, he sees them as he would see his very own beloved son, Jesus. Free from sin and an heir to the eternal riches of God. Friend, fellow brother and sister in Christ, that's for you this morning. As you are united by faith with Christ, he sees you as being free from sin 
and an heir to the eternal riches of God in Christ. Hallelujah. He has come. Amen. Beloved, that means David's obedience that we see in verse 7 of Psalm 40 and all of the blessing, all of the excitement, all the joy, all the peace that flows from it for David. It's but a shadow of the perfect obedience of Christ. You see what he's saying? Like, for example, if the sun is out, right, and it shines on me and we see my shadow on the ground, right? My shadow kind of looks like me, but it's not truly me, right? So the shadow is just, it's just a, a form of what the real thing is. And in the same way, the, the law is just a shadow of what the real thing is in Christ. And so all of the blessing and the excitement and joy and peace that David experienced in God's deliverance that we read about in Psalm 40. Friends, beloved Christian, it's merely a shadow all of his excitement, all of his joy, it's merely but a shadow of the unsearchable riches of Christ as described by the Apostle Paul. It's merely a shadow and you have the real substance. Do you see the implications, brothers and sisters? God in Christ goes beyond inclining his ear toward us. He actually leaves his heavenly throne and takes on human flesh with all of its brokenness with no righteous deeds or even pure intentions of our own, God acts to save us. He pulls our dead, sin-sick souls from the pit of eternal damnation and puts us on a path of purpose and praise and proclamation. Oh, friend, if you've trusted in Jesus, David's thanksgiving to God is only the tip of the iceberg. Friends, the good news of the gospel tells us that Jesus shows up in the midst of our deepest need, in the midst of our greatest despair. And like David in verse 7, Jesus declares, Behold, I have come. He lives the perfect, sinless, obedient life that God requires of all of his children but that neither you or I or King David can uphold due to our sinful nature. And even more, Jesus' obedience extended even to the point of death. And in his death on the cross, he took upon himself the punishment for our sin that we deserve. But friends, thanks be to God, amen, that in his perfect plan, that wasn't the end of the story in the grave. Jesus rose from the grave and conquered sin and death. And now he sits once again at the right hand of the Father in triumph over his enemies. And in his extravagant grace, friends, he invites you and I to be co-heirs with him of this glorious inheritance of eternal life in God's presence. Friends, so if anyone, friends, if anyone will turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus, they will be saved. Brothers and sisters, this is a deliverance that King David could not fully comprehend given his place in history. Yet you and I being on this side of the cross can know it well 
I can't help but, but believe that if David was as excited as Psalm 40 portrays regarding God's deliverance at that time, that he would be over the moon to see God's grace at work through Jesus Christ. There would surely, friends, be a new song in his mouth. And beloved, there should be a new song in ours as well. As we recall the glories of the gospel, whether individually before the Lord or in the gathering of the saints like we are today, may there be a glorious, reverent, awe-filled, never-ending, unexplainable and uncontainable joy and peace and delight and praise and thanksgiving to the God of the universe. For behold, Christ has come. And he has come to pull undeserving sinners like you and me from the pit of destruction and to plant our shaky souls on the solid ground of his steadfast love and faithfulness. Fellow saints, may we like David never grow tired or weary of proclaiming his salvation for us. May we have the same longing as the great hymn writer Charles Wesley who exclaimed, oh, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace, my gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of your name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrow cease, tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. Amen. Friend, if you've dropped into the church this morning... <laughs> and you're not a Christian, let me speak with you for just a moment as you may feel like you've been forgotten. First of all, I just want to thank you for being here. I pray um, that as you've listened to God's word this morning, uh, as it's been sung and read and proclaimed, Lord, I, I pray that, that God would be gracious to you. And specifically, like he was uh, for David, and that he writes about in verse six of Psalm 40, I pray that God would be gracious to give you an open ear this morning, that he would allow you, perhaps perhaps for the very first time, to truly hear and understand the good news that God offers you in Jesus Christ today, that you might truly see, truly see and believe that Christmas, this Christmas season, that this is about him coming to rescue you from the curse of sin and, friend, to give you the greatest Christmas gift you could ever receive a new life in Christ. He's come to do that. Know that you can receive that gift today. You can know the blessing and joy of the person that David describes in verse four by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus to save you. And so friends, if you have questions about that or would like to talk more about it, you have a whole room of people here who have submitted their lives to Jesus. Talk to someone. I'd encourage you to talk to someone if you came with someone. Feel free to come talk to me afterward or one of the pastors that you'll see at the doors as you leave. We would love to talk with you. We'd love to answer your questions, but we're grateful that you're here. And so, friends, undoubtedly, as we've seen, the Christian has every reason 
every reason to give thanks and praise to God for his deliverance through Christ. But as we, we kind of read through, as we just did the remainder of Psalm 40, it raises some natural questions for us. On the surface, it, it kind of seems like it's taken a turn for the worst, starting in verse 11. Like suddenly David's been overwhelmed by the circumstances of life and forgotten that God is his help and deliverer. So brothers and sisters, even as Christians, who can readily kind of attest uh, to God's salvation and care, I wonder if you ever find yourself in a similar place. God has delivered me, yes, but my present circumstance is dark. What do we do when it seems like trouble has surrounded us? What do we do when it seems like our sin has overwhelmed us? What does giving thanks to God even look like in those circumstances? Well, friends, again, God instructs us through David's actions and experience here in the second part of Psalm 40. And as we continue to look to Christ as the perfect fulfillment of obedience, our answer is sharpened even to a finer point. So not only should Christians praise and thank God for his deliverance through Christ, but Christians should also pray with a confident hope for future deliverance. And that's the second point. If you're taking notes, Christians should pray with a confident hope for future deliverance. And we're seeing that beginning in verse 11. So we notice here, if you look with me at verse 11, that the tone clearly changes in the latter half of this psalm. And even though David, he's been recently delivered from what seemed like some really significant and perilous trials, he still seemingly here finds himself surrounded by suffering and even danger. And so notice in verse 12, if you look with me, how overwhelmed David is by the guilt and shame of his own sin. He compares his sins to a mob that's completely surrounded him. The mob is even so great that he, he can't even count them. The guilt and confusion over his sin has settled all around him like a dense fog so that he can't even see past to find a way out. It's so overwhelming that he feels physically sick, like his heart is going to give out. So friends, it sounds to me, I don't know about you, but like David is having a panic attack. The most common complaint of which is, is feeling like you're having a heart attack. And friends, some of you know that feeling well. Some of you have walked through this kind of extraordinary anxiety or have walked with others through that. It's a terribly frightening experience. And, and even beyond this, beyond the kind of internal turmoil that David's experiencing, he also has, has trouble pressing in from the outside in the form of some, what seemed like some very cruel enemies. In verses 14 and 15, David tells us there are people who are trying to kill him and that they would delight in doing this and they would delight in his death. In fact, they go so far as to mock and ridicule him. And sadly, these are likely not uncommon circumstances for the ruler of a nation. And yet, despite all of this, the entire second half of Psalm 40 is David's humble prayer to God for himself and for the godly in general. Notice the confident tone of David's prayers. 
In verse 11 especially, we see him proclaim to God, you will not restrain your mercy from me. And your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. He seems utterly confident in God's ability and willingness to save him and keep him. And so with that in mind, his requests then in verse 13 and 17 to to make haste and to not delay, oh my God. They're not examples of David's faltering hope in God. Rather, they're these confident cries of a man who knows and trusts God will provide because he has promised to do so. But he also fully understands that God's that, that God works in his own time and in his own ways. And he knows that God does this for his own glory and the good of his people. And so, so he cries out, essentially, for God to make good on his promises. And, and Lord, if it be your will, do it quickly. And once again, he waits patiently. He waits for the Lord knowing that he will come. Beloved, have you found yourself in a similar position to King David before? Are you in a similar circumstance today? Perhaps you've been confronted or caught in some sin and it seems like you'll never ever shake the guilt and shame of it. Or perhaps you've been grievously sinned against by someone else. And as a result, everything about your life seems so upside down now that you don't think it'll, that you'll ever really be able to get over it. Or maybe you're so weighed down with fear and anxiety that it feels like every day life just brings a dense fog that never lifts. And while I, I don't imagine or know of anyone here who, who uh, knows the folks that are openly seeking to take their life. Um, but I assume there are several who know of others who desire to take their job or their family or their peace away from them. And we know from God's word that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour those whom he can. And friend, none of these trials, none of these things are, are simple or easy or have quick fixes. In fact, the opposite we know is true. And yet, if you find yourself in the midst of trials like these today, I encourage you to look and emulate King David's prayers of confident hope in God. I encourage you to patiently and expectantly call upon the Lord for help. Because what we also see in David's example is not... um, is that even if God doesn't alter our present circumstances, he often blesses us by altering our spiritual perspective in the midst of our trial. So that we can acknowledge, like David does in verse 17, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. And in that simple truth, we too then can can make David's or we can take up David's confident declaration to God and rejoice, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O God. So beyond these more kind of complex trials, Christian, 
we also just can't lose sight of the simple reality that the kingdom of God has not yet been fully realized. Christ has not returned. And until that day, the curse of sin remains. Therefore, we still experience the grief and sorrow of death. We still know the pain of being sinned against by others. And even though as Christians, we have been redeemed and placed our faith and hope in Christ to save us, we will still struggle with the temptation of our sin and the consequences of giving into our sinful desires here on earth. I recall attending um, a conference several years ago where a group of some prominent pastors were, were sitting at one of the sessions for a, a question and answer session. And uh, the question was asked of these pastors, um, after having dedicated their entire lives, some of them decades, um, to preaching God's word, if they found that they sinned less as a result of their dedication to God's word? It's an interesting question. And emphatically, every one of these men answered that actually the opposite was the case. And one of them explained that their dedication to teaching and preaching God's word over many decades had actually made them so much more aware of their sin than ever before. However, he also explained that as a result of those many years of laboring over the scriptures, that he was never more aware or more grateful of God's extravagant grace. And that's the way it should be, friends. God's law is meant to drive us to see God's grace. One of the old Puritan writers said that for every one look at your sin, take 10 looks at your Savior. Thinking about this this time of waiting for Christ's return and and struggling with our sin, I'm also reminded of, of the great reformer, Martin Luther, who suffered with this kind of recurring spiritual battle. And perhaps you or others you love find yourself in a similar scenario where, where you're just constantly reminded of your own sinfulness. And on the good days, you're able to, to kind of go to God, you're able to go to him and maybe even some faithful Christian friends and to be reminded of the grace you have in Christ and trust him afresh each day. But on your worst days, these thoughts sink you into the pit of despair. You're overwhelmed with the questions of whether or not God actually loves you or if you really even are a Christian. Friends, even though we may be able to acknowledge, like Job, that trials like like these, that there are opportunities for us to declare to God like Job did, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Even though we can see those as, as opportunities for that, friends, still, if we're honest, The fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, it can be exhausting. Amen? (laughs) And so we still find ourselves waiting, waiting for Christ's return with this this eager longing. And I I want us to look, if you will, let's turn one more place together to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter, and, and many of you will be familiar, we, we preached a series through Romans 8 recently, but I think Paul helps us to get a handle on what this looks like as a Christian, as we're walking through these kinds of times together. Romans chapter 8 in the Black Bible's on page 944. But listen to what he says, Romans 8 and verse 22. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. And the hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Sometimes the waiting and the fighting, friends, it's, it's so exhausting and overwhelming that we even struggle to talk to God sometimes, don't we? We might, we might not even know, like, what, what do I even pray for here? But praise God that as we're united with Christ, we have this precious gift that he's given us in the Holy Spirit. And, and again, Paul helps us. If you keep looking with me in Romans 8, verse 26, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Thank you, God. <laughs> For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, he knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So friends, not only does God give us the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us, but Paul also, he just he keeps driving home just how secure our hope is in Christ is and how confident we can be in his deliverance. Look one last time with me. Keep moving in Romans 8. If you look in in, uh, verse 32 or 31, if God is for us, friends, Christian, (laughs) who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, friends. Verse 37. In all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, for I am sure, there's that confidence, for I am sure, friend, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? There's that confidence, friends. We can go to him. There's our confidence in Christ. Beloved, David's example in the second half of Psalm 40, coupled with our understanding of Christ's work on our behalf, it allows us to come to God with such great confidence and hope that he will deliver us in the last day. Friend, behold, Christ has come. And just as surely as he came to save us, he will Call us home to be with him in paradise where all will be made right. Sin and suffering will be no more. And David's words in verse 16 will be the reality that all who have sought the Lord will rejoice and be glad in him and will say continually, great is the Lord. But friends, until that day, I encourage us all to continue to come back to Psalm 40. May we continue to allow David's words of praise and thanksgiving to God to be our words as well as we remember his deliverance. 
May we continue to allow David's confident petition to God to be ours as well as we face new trials and fight the good fight against the besetting ones. And may we continue to wait patiently for the Lord as David has shown us, a friend with an even greater hope, knowing that indeed Christ has come. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are so grateful that our words just won't do it this morning. We're so thankful for your sovereign care over us. We're so grateful for your deliverance. God, we're so grateful that even as we wait for you, Lord, we don't wait without hope, but we wait with enormous confidence. As we have seen you act in the past, so you will act in the future. God, we are so grateful for you. Lord, would you help us now with what little we have to proclaim your goodness and to say along with David, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. We entrust our care and all that we are to you. And we give you thanks and praise. In Christ's precious name, amen.